Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, "The Sniper" by Liam O'Flaherty. This was first published in a, a UK-based magazine called The New Leader, January 12, 1923. And uh, I think a lot of people will be familiar with this story because it is used in schools in both the United States and Canada. I distinctly remember reading this story. I don't know what English class it was or if it was called language arts or whatever it was called. But I distinctly remember reading this story and remembering the title, not remembering the author's name, but remembering the beginning and the middle and the end. Um, and I guess that's how I came to go looking for it. Uh, I don't know. Did you ever read this in school? I don't remember reading it in school. Okay. I At some point, it became, I think, one of the stories that are given to kids and it's kind of funny because I think if you look at it in its context, it, it's published in 1923, uh, you know, the very beginning of 1923, but just the summer before, that's when the events take place, like six months before. Um, it's not, as far as we know, not literally a true story. Uh, and yet, um, given that there's no names and all these events did happen, uh <laughs> It could be a true story in so much as these things happened, whether they all happened to the characters who are shown is another question. But I, I, I really like thinking about this story as like, why is it still being taught in schools? And it is. Why And how different is it for the people who are reading it in 1923 in, in London, in Belfast? How different is it for them than it is for us. And I think it's going to be radically different. And I think it's also going to be very similar because I think Liam O'Flaherty, this is his first story. And it basically, it's the only story that most people outside of, out of, outside of Ireland and, and the UK will even know him for, even though he's a novelist. I think it, that's really an extraordinary thing. Like he somehow made a story that is both timely and timeless. I uh, I hear you, my friend. Um, I wonder if it's possible for us to find out just how widely read the story is. I personally think that I'm, I'm just guessing. I, I I don't I didn't read it growing up in New York, at least not as far as I can recall. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it didn't eventually become part of the regular curriculum. Mm -hmm. On the other hand. This story, as I think we'll be able to see, would mean a lot more within the Commonwealth, the British Commonwealth, than it would in other places. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, why don't we read it and we'll, we'll see whether or not it, it ought to be read in other public schools, whether or not it is currently. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, will you read it for us? I'd love to, but I'm not going to do the Irish accents. I don't, I don't think it's necessary, but... Uh... If you if you want to imagine your own Irish accent or read it yourself in your own Irish accent, you are welcome to do so, listener. <laughs> the Sniper. The long June twilight faded into night, 
Dublin lay enveloped in darkness, but for the dim light of the moon that shone through fleecy clouds, casting a pale light as of approaching dawn over the streets and the dark waters of the Liffey. Around the beleaguered four courts, the heavy guns roared. Here and there through the city, machine guns and rifles broke the silence of the night spasmodically, like dogs barking on lone farms. Republicans and free staters were waging civil war. On a rooftop near O'Connell Bridge, a Republican sniper lay watching. Beside him lay his rifle, and over his shoulder were slung a pair of field glasses. His face was the face of a student, thin and ascetic, but his eyes had the cold gleam of the fanatic. They were deep and thoughtful, the eyes of a man who is used to look at death. He was eating a sandwich hungrily. He had eaten nothing since morning. He had been too excited to eat. He finished the sandwich, and taking a flask of whiskey from his pocket, he took a short draft. Then he returned the flask to his pocket. He paused for a moment, considering whether he should risk a smoke. It was dangerous. The flash might be seen in the darkness, and there were enemies watching. He decided to take the risk. Placing a cigarette between his lips, he struck a match, inhaled the smoke hurriedly, and put out the light. Almost immediately, a bullet flattened itself against the parapet of the roof. The sniper took another whiff and put out the cigarette. Then he swore softly and crawled away to the left. Cautiously, he raised himself and peered over the parapet. There was a flash and a bullet whizzed over his head. He dropped immediately. He had seen the flash. It came from the opposite side of the street. He rolled over the roof to a chimney stack in the rear and slowly drew himself up behind it until his eyes were level with the top of the parapet. There was nothing to be seen, just the dim outline of the opposite housetop against the blue sky. His enemy was undercover. Just then, an armored car came across the bridge and advanced slowly up the street. It stopped on the opposite side of the street, 50 yards ahead. The sniper could hear the dull panting of the motor. His heart beat faster. It was an enemy car. He wanted to fire, but he knew it was useless. His bullets would never pierce the steel that covered the gray monster. Then, round the corner of a side street, came an old woman, her head covered by a tattered shawl. She began to talk to the man in the turret of the car. She was pointing to the roof where the sniper lay, an informer. The turret opened. A man's head and shoulders appeared, looking towards the sniper. The sniper raised his rifle and fired. The head fell heavily on the turret wall. The woman darted towards the side street. The sniper fired again. The woman whirled round and fell with a shriek into the gutter. Suddenly, from the opposite roof, a shot rang out, and the sniper dropped his rifle with a curse. The rifle clattered to the roof. The sniper thought the noise would wake the dead. He stopped to pick the rifle up. He couldn't lift it. His forearm was dead. Christ, he muttered. I'm hit. Dropping flat on the roof, he crawled back to the parapet. With his left hand, he felt the injured right forearm. The blood was oozing through the sleeve of his coat. There was no pain, just a deadened sensation, as if the arm had been cut off. Quickly, he drew his knife from his pocket, opened it on the breastwork of the parapet, and ripped open the sleeve. There was a small hole where the bullet had entered. On the other side, there was no hole. The bullet had lodged in the bone. It must have fractured it. He bent the arm below the wound. The arm bent back easily. He ground his teeth to overcome the pain. 
Then taking out his field dressing, he ripped open the packet with his knife. He broke the neck of the iodine bottle and let the bitter fluid drip into the wound. A paroxysm of pain swept through him. He placed the cotton wadding over the wound and wrapped the dressing over it. He tied the ends with his teeth. Then he lay still against the parapet and, closing his eyes, he made an effort of will to overcome the pain. In the street beneath, all was still. The armored car had retired speedily over the bridge with the machine gunner's head hanging lifeless over the turret. The woman's corpse lay still in the gutter. The sniper lay still for a long time, nursing his wounded arm and planning escape. Morning must not find him wounded on the roof. The enemy on the opposite roof covered his escape. He must kill that enemy, and he could not use his rifle. He had only a revolver to do it. Then he thought of a plan. Taking off his cap, he placed it over the muzzle of his rifle. Then he pushed the rifle slowly upwards over the parapet until the cap was visible from the opposite side of the street. Almost immediately, there was a report, and a bullet pierced the center of the cap. The sniper slanted the rifle forward. The cap slipped down into the street. Then, catching the rifle in the middle, the sniper dropped his left hand over the roof and let it hang lifelessly. After a few moments... He let the rifle drop to the street. Then he sank to the roof, dragging his hand with him. Crawling quickly to the left, he peered up at the corner of the roof. His ruse had succeeded. The other sniper, seeing the cap and rifle fall, thought he had killed his man. He was now standing before a row of chimney pots, looking across with his head clearly silhouetted against the western sky. The Republican sniper smiled and lifted his revolver above the edge of the parapet. The distance was about 50 yards, a hard shot in the dim light, and his right arm was paining him like a thousand devils. He took a steady aim. His hand trembled with eagerness, pressing his lips together. He took a deep breath through his nostrils and fired. He was almost deafened with a report, and his arm shook with the recoil. Then, when the smoke cleared, he peered across and uttered a cry of joy. His enemy had been hit. He was reeling over the parapet in his death agony. He struggled to keep his feet, but he was slowly falling forward as if in a dream. The rifle fell from his grasp, hit the parapet, fell over, bounded off the pole of a barbershop beneath it, and then clattered onto the pavement. Then the dying man on the roof crumbled up and fell forward. The body turned over and over in space and hit the ground with a dull thud. Then it lay still. The sniper looked at his enemy falling and he shuddered. The lust of battle died in him. He became bitten by remorse. The sweat stood out in beads on his forehead, weakened by his wound and the long summer day of fasting and watching on the roof He revolted from the sight of the shattered mass of his dead enemy. His teeth chattered. He began to gibber to himself, cursing the war, cursing himself, cursing everybody. He looked at the smoking revolver in his hand, and with an oath, he hurled it to the roof at his feet. The revolver went off with a concussion, and the bullet whizzed past the sniper's head. He was frightened back to his senses by the shock. His nerves steadied. The cloud of fear scattered from his mind, and he laughed. Taking the whiskey flask from his pocket, he emptied it at a draft. 
He felt reckless under the influence of the spirit. He decided to leave the roof now and look for his company commander to report. Everywhere around was quiet. There was not much danger in going through the streets. He picked up his revolver and put it in his pocket. Then he crawled down through the skylight to the house underneath. When the sniper reached the laneway on the street level, he felt a sudden curiosity as to the identity of the enemy sniper whom he had killed. He decided that he was a good shot, whoever he was. He wondered, did he know him? Perhaps he had been in his own company before the split in the army. He decided to risk going over to have a look at him. He peered around the corner into O'Connell Street. In the upper part of the street, there was heavy firing. But around here, all was quiet. The sniper darted across the street. A machine gun tore up the ground around him with a hail of bullets, but he escaped. He threw himself face downwards beside the corpse. The machine gun stopped. Then the sniper turned over the dead body and looked into his brother's face. This is powerful. So uh, I have a little bit of information about how popular this story is in schools. Um, Other than, you know, I've read it in school and some of my students have read it in school. The Wikipedia uh, uh, entry for this story agrees with me. It doesn't have a citation. Uh, showing, you know, that it is widely read today in secondary schools by many English-speaking countries, owing to its short length, uh, being easy to read, and having a notable surprise ending. Uh, I guess it does have a surprise ending, and I think that offers a reason as to why it is commonly read today, still. Um, all of those reasons it's easy to read it's short it has a surprise ending it's also really well written i think that that helps a lot but i just think um you know when i read it the first time i didn't know anything about the irish civil war i didn't really know anything about ireland probably at that time other than it was a place um so i had no i have no uh stake in this game i didn't care Either way, what was happening. But uh, reading it today, um, you can, with the knowledge I have now about how the Irish Civil War went and how it had long-ranging echoes uh, afterwards and lots of precursors before it, I think it's really interesting to think about how it would have been received at the time and who the audience was for it. So uh, I mentioned the name of the magazine that it was published in, The New Leader, uh, probably more of a newspaper than a magazine. Um, I couldn't find the original, but I, I looked at later editions, and it looks more like a newspaper than a magazine. On the other hand, um, what I do know about it is that it is a left-leaning magazine, uh, probably a socialist magazine is a good way of putting it. And we actually did a story that's very similar to this, back in October of 2018, episode 142, a story called War by Jack London. And if you recall that one, it's uh, not set in a particular war like this one is, but it's about a lone reconnaissance soldier who, on horseback, is sent out to look for the enemy. Uh, He's very wary and very worried about getting shot. Um, he eventually spots an enemy across uh, a creek uh, who is bending low. He's got red hair, and he's bending low, and he 
drinks water and he's going to shoot him, but he doesn't because he sees himself reflected in that man. And at the end of the story, we get a kind of a reversal of this one. Instead of our main character being the killer, as we have in this, he uh, he's killed by the red-haired red man at the end of war. Um, and it has a very similar impact and a very similar power, but that story is not about any particular country. In fact, it's probably a fictional country and a fictional war. Whereas this one is very specific, I think that fascinating effect, and also that it was published in a socialist newspaper, in that case it was uh, The Nation, July 29, 1911, um, these stories are universal, I think. They echo, and that's why they're so powerful. I think that... Huh. I must admit, I didn't find it a powerful story. Perhaps I did read it in school, lo, these decades ago, and so it didn't get to me the way... It should have. Um, I thought that it was written rather fluidly, mm-hmm. but every time I saw a cliche like fleecy clouds or a hail mm-hmm. of bullets, mm-hmm. um, I thought, yeah, this could be the guy's first published story. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the, the question that arose for me was what, what the story asks me to infer. I, I, the fact that the, it turns out to be his brother is signaled in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that they, these two snipers are on opposing sides of a street that runs through the heart of their own city. They're right mm-hmm. by the Liffey, the water of life that runs through their city. Um, they are using the same skills. We know that this fellow is a lad, uh, I must say that the description of him uh, being ascetic and also fanatic mm-hmm. um, didn't work for me. It didn't work for me that he had a sandwich with him mm-hmm. and yet didn't eat all day um, if he's so hungry. It didn't work for me that he ate hungrily while he was holding still. I thought there was a lot in the story, frankly, that didn't work for me. But The story is third-person limited. We come in behind the eyes of this one sniper. It's all from his viewpoint. And what I find here is that, although personally I don't want to and never have killed anybody, um, I'm sort of, I begin by feeling a sympathy for the title character. Mm -hmm. Um, He's in the process of killing. In fact, he... He kills two people before he gets to the the events that lead to his terrible discovery. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a a friend of mine said when I was discussing the story with him, um, if if the author wanted us to feel sympathy for this sniper, he wouldn't have had him kill an old woman. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, he would have had him kill somebody who was equally a belligerent. But what's wrong with this? Oh, well, she's an informer. Mm-hmm. And what is she informing? She's just pointing out, you know, there's this guy up there. In fact, she is using the young man who comes out of the turret 
as a tool to do damage herself. So what we have here across the street is the question of whether or not we should divide or stay the same. The Republicans want to remain as part of the British Commonwealth, as part of the United Kingdom. Uh, no, the other way around. The Republicans, no, think, Republicans want a republic. They want no queen. And the Free Staters? Uh, they want the they Irish, want the free, Irish state, free State. Free State, yeah. Exactly. It's, it's pretty complex. <laughs> okay. These people are fighting each other, and it seems to me that what we're being told is if you are wanting to, to separate, um, you're going to be fighting your own kind. It is a civil war, which some mm -hmm. people like to call an oxymoron. Right. If you can stop fighting yourselves, life will be better. Why would you want to fight yourselves? Why have a civil war? And it seems to me that this is something the story does brilliantly. By coming in through the eyes of the sniper and feeling a sympathy for him in wanting to have that young man not die after he's been wounded, not die after he has been obviously betrayed. Um, we come to understand that if you see a certain way, if you see from only one side of the street, you will think that killing is justified. Now, when he kills the other sniper, suddenly he feels terrible. Suddenly the lust of battle leaves him. And the question immediately arises, why is it that killing a young man in the turret and killing an old woman did not do that, but killing this other sniper did. And the reason clearly is, in looking at the other sniper, he suddenly realizes that could have been me. Indeed. Suddenly, yes, suddenly the sniper has a sense of compassion, of connectedness, of empathy, as opposed to separation. He does the thing that is the opposite of civil war. But it turns out it's too late because before he had the revelation that civil war is, in fact, if not oxymoronic, moronic mm -hmm. from his own blinkered viewpoint. He wound up not recognizing his own brother mm -hmm. and killing him. So it seems to me that although you point out that the Beers is set in an unnamed war, uh, London, the London, I'm sorry, excuse me, the London. Forgive me. Uh, it's set in an unnamed war and therefore universal. I think this is universal, too. I agree. I, I just don't think it would have been in 1923, you know, the beginning of January 1923, uh, for the people reading it. I think they would have say, seen this as, uh, obviously, uh, a well-written story, but it was also the story of what they had just witnessed. And 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 that's so that's the striking thing to me about it. So in the case of War by Jack London, nobody knows about what this war is. We don't know the armies. We don't know the country. We don't know anything about it. Other than somewhere in Northern Europe or North America doesn't doesn't matter when it is. In fact, here it's very specific, and yet they do the same job. And and as you say, he is a 
it's it's he the the man he kills ultimately in the story is a mirror of him. He's another sniper, a counter sniper, and they're in a sniper war, and he's been sitting there all night. Perhaps he's been unable to eat, and we know that they had the same training, in fact, and the decisions that the narrator or not the narrator the viewpoint character makes throughout the night and the dawning when it comes it's very interesting because he presumably put himself up on this roof this is not a war where you're conscripted and forced to go he's on the republican side he is a breakaway guy he has made his decision to join the army or to join the the fighting to get up on that roof to point his gun at people as you say he he kills the the machine gunner in the armored car doesn't think about it at all he shoots the woman and her body f- f- lays still in the street the ne- very next line is a great line it's it, it's actually very well written um the woman's corpse lay still in the gutter the sniper lay still for a long time, nursing his wounded arm. So th- there's a parallel there that he is not seeing, but we can feel. And when yes. he later on, he felt a sudden curiosity as to the identity of the enemy sniper whom he, he had killed. This after throwing down his, his pistol to the, to the roof floor. Uh, I want to read that line because it's really interesting. Um, he... This is on page 245. His teeth chattered. He began to gibber to himself, cursing the war, cursing himself, cursing everybody. So he curses three times. This is uh, like a magic spell, a magic curse. And then he looked at the smoking revolver in his hand, and with an oath, he hurled it to the roof at his feet. It's almost like the world's upside down. He hurled it to the roof at his feet. Now, obviously, we know he was on the roof, so that's not unusual. But what put him on the roof? What put him behind that parapet? What put the man who he's sniping at across the street on his roof, behind his parapet? Earlier in the story, he hid by the chimney pot to spot the the sniper. And when the sniper took a shot at him, he did that fake, the maneuver in order to pretend that he had been shot. And he gets the same result. They use the same techniques. He hides, he hides in front of the chimney pot in order to not be outlined. And, of course, then this, our sniper, who is no longer sniping with a long-distance rifle, he's sniping with a pistol, he says, he felt a sudden curiosity as to the identity of the enemy sniper who he had killed. He decided, and this word comes up a few times, our decisions, Come up a few times. He decided that he was a good shot, whoever he was. He wondered, did he know him? Of course he did. He has a reason for wondering. These aren't uh, Germans in this town. This is somebody he knows. And if it's not a guy he knows, as in they speak the same language, they're at least speaking similar accents. And they're maybe even living in the same city. And maybe even lived on the same block. And maybe even lived across the street, and right, it goes on and on. But he decided that he was a good shot, whoever he was. He wondered, did he know him? Perhaps he had been in his own company before the split in the army. He decided again, 
to risk going over and having a look at him. He peered around the corner into O'Connell Street and the upper part of the street where there was heavy firing. Those are other little battles that are brother against brother. And then we get that final line and looked into his brother's face. I remember when I read this the first time in school, I didn't know, and I'm not sure the story tells you either, and given the publication source, whether it is literally his brother or rather it is his fellow man that he has killed. And I think that's why this is such a powerful story. It doesn't tell you. Now, I think most people probably go for the normal answer, which is they were actual, you know, brothers and they had the same mom. And in fact, that makes me think that the woman he shot earlier could have been his own mother. And obviously, it's unlikely that the guy in the in the armored car was his own father. The point is, is he's shooting somebody's mom and he's he's shooting somebody's son. And he's shooting somebody's brother. And that's why it's such a powerful story. Because it doesn't say this is about a particular guy accidentally shooting his own brother when he just meant to shoot the enemy. It's about the, the decisions you make to shoot people can have terrible consequences when you realize what you've done. Very, very powerful, I think. For me... Um It becomes powerful because the manipulation of viewpoint Mm -hmm. makes me recognize that I could do that. Right. Um, This is not ethnography. This is lyric. And putting someone who is not from the era, not from the place, and has never fired a weapon against a human being vicariously into this, able to see it as attractive and then recognize what I should have all along, that it's terrible. Um, This is didactic in the best sense of the word. Mm -hmm. It gives me an experience from which I can learn. Um, no wonder teachers impose it on children mm-hmm. in school. <laughs> Most of the time I think of that as a bad thing, that it, it drives children away. But I think in the case of this story, it just it, it resonated with me. I hope when I, – I imagine that when teachers do assign it, they're hoping that the pupils will think that there is always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.